Good morning. Good morning. Wow. Good to see everybody. I don't know how many of you got a chance to go to the worship prayer and healing night, but it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. If you, man, there was, if nothing else, and maybe you got a chance to read my, my write up a little bit on the, the Facebook page, but, but if for nothing else, the amount of churches that were partnered together, the amount of diversity, the amount of love and laughter with everybody, the constant buzz of excitement, the praying together. I mean, if just that alone, huge win. Um, but on top of all that, yes, indeed, the Holy Spirit was present and active and moving and there was people touched and transformed and healed and anyway if you have not got a chance to be at one of those I I just want you to mark it on your calendar for next year it is such a big deal in the life of our church and I would love to share that with you but it was it was awesome another another exciting thing that happened last weekend was I had a chance to go and teach with our high school ministry. I got a chance to go in and just talk to the kids, and I talked a little bit about what I had written about, which was about anxiety and depression, because it's really, really dominant with our kids today. It's increasing and increasing and increasing, and we want our younger ones protected and safe and have tools, right, to be able to work through this stuff that they wouldn't have to suffer alone. So I came in there as their pastor to be able to say, listen, uh, everybody out here, we're all still your family. I'm your pastor. I wrote a book because I get it. I understand you are not alone. That was the primary message. You are not alone. And there are a bunch of helps that we can walk through together. So your kids were, were gracious and kind. It was just a blast to be able to talk with them and a uh, wonderful, wonderful time. And I love watching them worship. All right, well, let's go ahead and take the rest of our time, dive into God's word. Can you take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and also a Bible? We are in part six of our Identity in Crisis series through the book of Judges, and I entitled this morning's message, A Man Stands Alone. And as I draw your attention to the fill in the blank, let me ask you some questions. Where did you come from? What was your background like did you have a dysfunctional household growing up a relatively healthy one did have you gone through significant pain in your life are there things that are still clinging to you from your past this is the heart of what i'm trying to get to because for some of us we've had things happen to us in our past that are still haunting us there are others of us that we purposely or sometimes just ignorantly we cause the chaos in our lives and we're still dealing with the ramifications and the memories of that so uh, just for a moment it, it just be thinking is this something in my life that is really still between me and god because this is what i want to tell you God is not concerned about where you've been. He's more concerned about where you're going. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Your family history doesn't define you. Your family history doesn't define you. I would add to that as well that your personal history does not define you. Why? Because God's bigger than that. And and as much as we live 
linked to the past as much as yes there is a lot of our lives today which is a sum total of what we've walked through even though those things are true god has the ability to make all things new god has the ability to transform us and set us free the bible says that he who the son sets free will be free indeed you know this verse so if he knows how to set captives free that means it doesn't matter how long you've been a slave it only matters that jesus can set you free today you understand what i'm saying and we got to lock this in in this year of identity there are still many of us that are allowing the past to continue to shape us more than the holy spirit today and we have to allow him to do his work And some of that's going to take forgiveness. Some of it's going to take a renewed mind. Some of us, it's going to take some refreshing. Some of us, we need to feel the grace of God. Some of us, we need to feel his love and affirmation. But whatever that is, we need that. So we're about to walk into a story where a man had a horrible start. We see it bleed through and steal stuff from him in his life. But when God got involved, it didn't stop him completely. And I think this is a call to all of us to have more and more freedom in our lives. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. If you want to take out your Bibles, we're going to be in Judges chapter 10. But uh, once again, I would like to utilize a map that we're going to throw up on the screen here just to remind you of a couple things and we'll keep the map up until i i tell us to drop it down so the map shows that there are two sides of israel in this day during the judges period you got the east side and the west side the right side and the left side there's two and a half tribes on one side the rest are on the other What we're about to do is walk into a story that says both sides are being rocked and God raised up a deliverer for both sides. We're going to begin on the right side of that map where you see the tribe, the half tribe of Manasseh. On that whole side, God is going to raise up a deliverer by the name of Jephthah. The book of Judges covers 12 judges, six major, six minor We're going to be going through some of those today. All right, we can go ahead and bring that back down. Let's begin together in Judges chapter 10, verse 1, by studying the judge who comes from the worst history of names in the Bible. There are no more stupid names than this. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, which Tola is very fine. You can name your child Tola, but he's the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. That's a drag. So we're going to go ahead and say Nick's on the Pua name for your child, and Dodo does not encourage confidence. All right, praise the Lord. Now this guy, despite his stupid history of names, he reigned for a long time. He actually reigned many, many more years than our main character that we're going to be studying today named Jephthah, but he reigned for 23 years. After him was a man by the name of Jair. Jair reigned for 22 years, very incredibly influential and very, very wealthy. And we also know that he was happened to be a polygamist. And you go, well, how do you know that? Does it say that? No, but he had 30 sons, so I'm not a doctor. But ladies, can you confirm for me that you're not going to have 30 sons just by yourself, all right? So we can 
can uh, we can pretty much guess that uh, there were other women involved. I certainly hope so, right? I mean, either way, it's bad news. All I'm saying is that that's a lot of kids. So 45 years of peace and security from the Lord, and you think, man, they're really rolling. They're doing excellent as a nation. So how did they respond? Go to verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served other gods. Man, what a drag. Here we go again into that cycle when things are going well. We run away and we try to add a bunch of stuff that we feel like we can control or makes us feel better. And we start serving these other gods. Here's what's ironic about the list. It lists seven nations that Israel defeated with the power of God. It lists seven gods that now Israel is worshiping. In other words, they worshiped every god of the nation that God defeated. All right. Now, here's what's so weird about it. In our modern day view, looking backwards, we realize none of those are really gods in the first place. There is only one God, right? That's Yahweh. All right. But back then, they didn't think that. They had a superstitious belief that there were many gods all over the place, and they were in locations. So whenever there was a fight, it was not just me fighting you, it was my god fighting your god. Kind of like, I think my dad can beat your dad up, that kind of thing. Everybody had their gods behind them, so if you got defeated, you felt like the other god was bigger than yours. So what does that do here? When your God beat up their God, why are you worshiping their God now? Why in the world would you go and find a defeated God and give them any attention? If they lost last time, why do you want them on your team? And this is where we reflect back on them and they go, wow, they really lack intelligence, right? I mean, this is kind of our feeling. We look at this and go, man, how could you be so stupid? Well... I can't say it's all that different from us. They forsook the Lord and they went after stuff that didn't, that couldn't save them. So let's play our modern day God game, right? Who are our modern day gods in this world? Let's say uh, money. A bunch of us are interested in money and we do all kinds of crazy stuff to get money. That is a God of our land. Y'all know who Robin Williams is? All right. Now, I still think of him as the genie from uh, Aladdin, but I I know that he did many, many things, uh, many, many movies. I don't know if you're into the Mrs. Doubtfire era. All right. Or or else you slide a little bit more, a little creepier. He's done a couple other movies, right? Um, He's a very wealthy man. He committed suicide not that long ago. His wealth did not rescue him from his pain. Do you understand what I'm saying? And yet we run after it. It did not work for him, but we still run after it as if it will save us. Some of us run to drugs to make us feel better. And yet for Jim Morrison of the doors, it didn't fix his problem. As a matter of fact, it killed him. I don't know how many of you can go back in history and remember Howard Hughes, but Howard Hughes died a very lonely, destructive life, and he was a very, very powerful man. And yet we keep trying to get power, but it didn't solve his problems. And we go through the list. Did fame help Michael Jackson be a peaceful person? 
No, it didn't solve his problem. Is intelligence rescuing Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant astrophysicists of the world? No. My, my point is, is that the gods of this land have not been effective to help the people that lean into them most. So why are we still chasing after them? At some point, doesn't wisdom have to kick in? And we go, wow, that doesn't work. Maybe I shouldn't put all my attention there. Maybe I shouldn't let that dominate me. I've, I've shared this with you before, but let me, let me remind you this. I believe the number one God besides Yahweh, besides Jesus Christ, besides the God that we serve, the number one God of Bridgeway is busyness. It dominates us. We give more attention to busyness than anything else. And we can always justify it because we keep saying that we're busy for good reasons. But nevertheless, it's a God. You're trading out your family for it. You're trading out your peace for it. You're trading out your sleep for it. You're trading out your joy for it. We are trading anything and everything for the God of busyness. And you go, well, how do you know that's a big God? Because every time I come in contact with you and I ask what is stopping your spiritual growth, it's always I'm too busy. It's the reason you don't show up to events. It's the reason why you have a hard time making it to church. It's the reason why you have, you, you don't have enough room for any friends or any ability to connect. It's the reason why everything is being drained out of your life. And you go, wow, that sounds pretty judgmental. No, no, no. I'm at the front of the line. I'm totally messed up in this area, right? So it's really hard to disciple you out when I'm in. So I totally get what it means to be busy. I know it has stolen so much from me and I'm constantly trying to figure out how I submit to the Lord what it's going to take in adjustments in my spirit and the renewal of my mind to live differently. But once again, shouldn't wisdom tell us that we need to make that journey, that we have to go counterculture and say we cannot allow culture to define us we must determine what is good and godly and right. Yeah? All right, good. Three people agree with me. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Let's pick it up in verse seven. So they turn away from God. It says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines on the West Coast. And you find out the Amorites on the East Coast. Go to verse eight. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel for 18 years. All right, so Israel cries out to God, and I ask you this question. Why does God have to use suffering to get our attention? And, and I'll merely, I've said it so many times, I'll merely add this phrase. Maybe next time when we're living on top of the world, we can lean into Jesus. Maybe it's not the only reason we go to church is because something blew up. Maybe next time when everything is good and right, we still have our time with the Lord. Maybe when things are just rolling fresh and we're victorious and we're peaceful, maybe that's when we most lean into the Lord and we say, God, you are good, and we run with him every day. Maybe that would be a new way of living. Yeah, amen? Praise God. 
Praise God. So in verse 12, God says to the people of Israel, I saved you out of the hand of all your enemies so far. Look at verse 13. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Oh, that sounds heavy. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you at the time of your distress. Ouch. Ouch. Whoa. Come on now. Really? The the God's like, you know what? Fine. If you want them, go. And then when things get bad, call out to them. I'm out. Now that's obviously God, you know, showing them some frustration. And obviously it's kind of this, this reverse psychology parenting system where God's going, I'm out, I'm out. Now he's not really out, but he's constantly telling them, I'm not going to keep saving you guys if all you do is resist me and want away from me. I'm just going to open up the door and just let you run on through. Look at the people's response. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, you're right, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us today. Now that, that is so funny. I mean, there's so much weirdness about that. Hey, you can totally beat me up tomorrow, but just today. And then the other thing is they're like, hey, whatever you got planned, that's totally cool, but don't let these guys win. You beat up these guys, we're good with any new people that, you know. So what I think is interesting is the people are too desperate to argue. And they just said, whatever you want to do, God. Well, they know what they need to do. So look at the next line. So they put away the foreign gods from among them in verse 16. And they serve the Lord. Okay, in other words, in order to serve the Lord best, you have to get rid of the gods that are in front of him. So once again, let me ask you, what's between you and God? And how do we get rid of that? Because it's stealing his attention. He deserves your full attention. So where is your attention being diverted? And then how do we get rid of that? Because sometimes what we do is we have all our gods. And then we just try to focus on God more. Along with all our stuff. And God says, hey, can you get rid of that and that? So that we don't always have something. It's like, well... It's like trying to go on a date and you have your last date in the back seat. (laughs) Hey, it's like, this is so awkward. This is so uncomfortable. All right. That's kind of how it feels. Some of you will only remember that, (laughs) that stupid analogy when you go home. All right. Praise the Lord. Let's look at the, the bottom half or the second half of verse 16. And God became impatient over the misery of Israel. This reminds me of how much he's a dad. Okay, once again, we're talking about the God of the Old Testament. No difference between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's just as loving and kind and he's beautiful and gracious and and he's forgiving. Look at how he handles the parenting thing. He gets frustrated over his kid's misery. Now, who's causing the misery? He is. But he's even getting impatient with it. And why is he doing it? Because it's best for them, but it still grates on him. Let me give you an analogy. There are some of you in this room who are really good at being the disciplinarian parent. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The one who actually holds the line. That would be my wife in our family. My wife is the disciplinarian of our family. I'm the caving in one. 
You know what I'm saying? All right. So I'm just trying to balance the family. That's all I'm saying. Right. So my, my wife can have the wisdom to see through why it's good to hold the boundary and the discipline because she can see the blessing and benefit to the child. I only know that I don't like them stressing out and being upset. All I know is I was this guy. I don't want to get into your parenting style here, but we chose to go the route where we wanted our kids to sleep through the night in their own bed. So we ended up uh, doing the whole thing where sometimes you have to let them cry themselves to sleep. I was the guy down the hall right outside the door. I was the one going, babe, I think they're in trouble. I think they're in trouble, honey. I think that they're dying right now. Okay. And she kept going, you need to come back to bed. They're going to be fine. You need to come back to bed. I'm like, no, did you hear that? There was a different tone in that cry. And I'm freaking out. It's, it's like God is, is watching the struggle of his children and he gets impatient over their misery. And he's like, okay, enough is enough. I know I'm trying to be a disciplinarian here, but even I'm tired of you hurting. This is ridiculous. We got to change it. So take a look at this. It says this, uh, chapter 11, verse one. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, meaning he's from Gilead, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Now, in that culture, in, in, in our culture, that's something that you kind of go, yeah, I don't really bring it up a lot. In that culture, you're an outcast because everything about you is wrong and it's unclean and you're in a religious environment and there's rejection and rejection and rejection, right? So he's an outcast. Gilead was the father of Jephthah and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his son, wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived, lived in the land of Tob, which is 80 miles away and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Okay. This is our character. His mom was a prostitute. His dad hooked up with, and he also was married. So you have all kinds of weird chaos going on in this household. And then he has a bunch of other sons. So now there's half brothers. They all make fun of him and drive him out. When dad passes away and inheritance and money is on the table, they all gang up on him and kick him out. Now, when they kick him out, they're sending him out to die. He's got nothing. And you don't just move 80 miles away. What are you going to do out there? So what he ends up doing is starting a biker gang, right? I mean, he goes out there. I don't know what he rode, but as he went out there, he goes out and he's got nothing. So he lives a life of crime. All he has is bad dudes come and hang out with him. And so he's out there being a tough guy, robbing and stealing and doing all that just to make a living. This is where our main character comes from. Now, I don't know if your family ever treated you that horribly, but it's possible. That there are many characters in the Bible, characters that you love, where their family dysfunction was so extreme that they were even chased out of the house. Think about how much David's brothers hated him. Think about the fact that Abraham sent Ishmael away because of the fighting in the house. Think about the fact that Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. 
I mean, this is just, there's so much. Here's one of the reasons you need to read the Old Testament. Their dysfunction makes you feel better about you. Right? Man, they're so mixed up. Well, some of you go, man, that's kind of, I came from that environment. Man, I've been involved in so much garbage, so much pain, and so much dysfunction. It dominates my life. I just need you to know that this is who God uses. You think that your past means God can't use you. I disagree. I think that it only means that he wants to use you more. All right, we pick it up in, in verse 4. After, uh, after a time, pick it up in verse 5. The elders of Gilead, who knew the enemy was coming, went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to him, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me? You drove me out of my father's house. Now you're coming to me when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, yeah, you're right. That's why we have turned to you now. That you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again, notice he still calls it home. If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your leader. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went. Let's put the humanity into this. How much bitterness is this guy wrestling with? How much forgiveness issues does he have to work through? Because remember, they chased him out to die. And now that they're in need, they run back and want his attention. Now, he's only good at one thing, he feels. What's that? Killing people and doing bad stuff. Well, when times get desperate, all of a sudden they go, well, we need someone to kill someone. You're great at it. So how about you come help us? He's like, wait a second. You were a jerk to me my entire life. Now, he could have just said, you know what? I live solo. I'm completely isolated. This is your problem. If the enemies come in and oppress you as much as it bothers me, I can move. Forget you. I don't need you. But he didn't. He said, if you let me come home, his heart was not so hard that he did not still view it as home. He still viewed them as his people. I don't know how he kept his heart soft because they did some bad things. So I'm going to ask that about you. Where's the level of hardness of your heart? Because a lot of people have hurt you in the past. Are you still letting them cage you and dominate you? Or have you been able to engage with the Lord and allow his grace and freedom to set you free and now you get a chance to peek in periodically and go, are they safe to hang out with? Because I understand boundaries, y'all. I'm high on boundaries. He even called him on it. He wasn't a doormat. He said, you treated me wrong. We're going to be real clear on this. I'm not going to pretend and go, la, 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 everything's happy. No, no, no. You hurt me. But I'm not going to let that wreck me. So he's even willing to come back into the group and help him out. I don't know how his forgiveness worked, but I know we need a lot of it in our lives. Well, yeah, Lance, obviously I would forgive them if they came and all fell down at my feet and all said they were wrong. That makes it way easier, dude. And if it would just be that way, I could move on. 
Do you understand that even though they want him to be their leader, he still has to live with them. And just because they're desperate doesn't mean their character has changed. It doesn't mean they're not still mean and nasty and rude. And you understand what I'm saying? So he's willing to re-engage with them. Huh? How did God do that? So anyway, it's time for him to go to war. So he decides to use diplomacy first. Diplomacy is where you talk things out. Now, he could have just said, I'm going to go in and start hacking. But he decides to talk it out. So he sends the messengers down to the Ammonite people who are attacking. And he says, hey, guys, what's your problem? What do you want? And they said, well, you stole our land 300 years ago. He's like, wait, hold up. 300 years ago? Are we really talking about this? You don't, haven't had a problem in 300 years. Now you're bringing it up? Why? Well, you know, when Moses came through, he stole our land. No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, we come rolling out of Egypt. We're all slaves. We all have had a miserable time in the desert. And we're trying to go in. And our own half-brothers, our own relatives, the Edomites, block us. So we go around. We try to go through Moab. Nope, they're supposed to be family. They block us out. We got to go around. Then we come up against the Amorites, who are your crew from the past. Not only did you block us, you came out and fought with us, and we had to beat you up. So no, we didn't take your land. And if we did take your land, you took it from the Moabites in the first place. You do not have rights to this land. So the answer to that is you have bad facts. So no. Okay, Okay, that's right. Well, they didn't like that answer. And so they said, well, we're going to kill you. And he said, all right, we're going to have to fight. And then everything changed in verse 29. Chapter 11, verse 29, what does it say? Then the, Holy, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Uh-oh. That means God supercharged him. That means the Holy Spirit rolled in. The Holy Spirit descends upon him and he goes to war. The Holy Spirit's the game changer. I'm going to say that over and over and over. What do we need more in this, in this church? Holy Spirit. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit is here, it is right. It is good and it is godly. It means that whenever the Holy... Now, have any of you ever heard somebody say like either in a song or they say from the stage, they're praying, they're like, come Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Come Holy Spirit. Well, all of you theologians are irritated by that, right? You're all going, what do you mean? Come Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's already here. Okay. It's not what they mean. See, here's the thing, and I even say this phrase, they're not saying, come Holy Spirit, like you're absent. It means, Holy Spirit, we want you to be more tangible and more present, and we're going to try to get out of your way. That's actually what it means. It means, come Holy Spirit, we're now trying to back out and allowing you to fill that void. It's not saying he's not there. Everybody in this church is clear that if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. That is a fact. So no one's saying he's not here. It's saying we want you to activate here. Come Holy Spirit that we are less of us and more of you. In other words, we have been so selfish. We've been taking up all the space. And now we want to get out of your way and let you move. So next time you hear that phrase, understand what they're trying to say. We just want the presence of the Holy Spirit thick in this place. Why? Because where the Holy Spirit is, there's transformation. There's change of lives. 
there's love, there's peace. All the fruit of the Spirit emanates from Him being around. Do we not need more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? And that comes from the Holy Spirit. And you go, well, every time they say, come Holy Spirit, I think somebody's going to fall on the floor. Hold up. You understand he's not a one-trick pony, man. He's got all kinds of stuff that he does. And the majority of it is shockingly normal, all right? Now, is he allowed to do weird stuff? Totally he is. But my point is, what we want is God's presence in this place. If we're all just hanging out doing a country club and talking about cool stuff, that's not powerful enough. That's not going to bring change. We need the thick presence of God here. Amen? Amen. Praise God. All right. Look at verse 30. So Jephthah is now ready to go to battle, but he's nervous. That's understandable. He's a human. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give these bad guys, these Ammonites into my hand, then whatever or whoever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I come back from winning shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Okay, we just need to talk about this. <laughs> this is a stupid idea, okay? And because and, here's the deal. What do you think's gonna come out of your house? Like, uh, you, well, maybe it's a sheep. No, no. Why is a sheep in your house? They don't even have animals in their house. So what do you think is going to walk out but a person? And what right do you have over their lives? I mean, everything about this is wrong. Everything about this is desperate because really there are rules in the Bible about making vows to God. There's nothing wrong with making a vow to God, but what? You better follow through. You do not mess with God. This is straight up a bribe. God, I really want to win, so I'm going to give you something that's really difficult in return. Have you ever tried to manipulate God like this? Because that's what it is. It's a manipulation and it's a bribe. God, if you heal this person, I will this. If you save my daughter, I'll do this. If you'd, and when we start making deals with God, it is demonstrating that we don't even know who he is. You don't bribe God because he's not going to play your game. He'll let you make the stupid vow. He'll hold you to it. And the whole time he's bummed out because it wasn't necessary. And here's the problem. He, Jephthah was so influenced by his culture, he was treating Yahweh like everyone treats all the other gods. Which means you've got to look desperate, you've got to make deals and all this stuff. Are you treating God like our society is treating their gods? Are you trying to use God like our society tries to use money? What are we doing? And, and, and when are we going to allow God to define his relationship with us, not society? Do you hear the desperation in his voice? I was reading a commentary by Tim Keller, and he was talking about some of these pieces, and he brought up a couple points I thought were good. Do you see that his rejection from his past is still driving some of his decisions? Why? Because why should he believe that God is going to follow through on his word if no one else ever has? 
Everyone else has rejected him. Why wouldn't God reject him? So he's trying to wrangle and force God to be there because everyone else bails on him. So let me ask you that question. Are you still treating God or thinking about God like other people treat you? Because he's not like other people. Well, everyone leaves me, but God doesn't. Yeah, well, everybody thinks less of me, but God doesn't. Yeah, well, everyone fill in the blank, because if you're still trying to think about God, like other people, you're not seeing God. And your dysfunction is coloring your view of the Lord. We've got to let that part go. Here's the other thing that's interesting. He's trying to manipulate God for a win. Why? Because if he loses, how much more rejection is he going to get? They already rejected him when he didn't do anything wrong. What happens if he loses this fight? And they're all counting on him. He's so scared of rejection that he's willing to do anything radically to make sure that he wins. But none of this was necessary. The Holy Spirit had already come upon him and he was already guaranteed victory. Y'all, that's the Christian life. You already have the Holy Spirit. And he's already fulfilling the good work in you that he began. So when we are making all these deals with God, it's insulting. God, I I swear, you got to listen to me. I'm already listening to you. No, seriously. (laughs) No, I'm serious. Yes, I'm listening to you. God, you have to do this for me. Well, actually, I'm the dad. And no, I don't. Do you understand what I mean? Hmm. Okay. Anyway, the bottom line is Jephthah fought the bad guys and won. Just like God told him he would. But what does that mean now? Well, let's pick it up at verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. Okay, why is she dancing? Because daddy's safe. He knows something she doesn't know. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. All of God's blessing for his future was in this young lady. Hmm. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes in distress and mourning and said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble for me. In other words, you're breaking my heart. For I opened my mouth to the Lord. I promised him something. And I can't take back my vow. Now check out her response. And she said to him, my father, yep, you promised the Lord. So do to me whatever has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies and on the Ammonites. Hey, dad, as long as your home's safe, I don't care. We're good. Do you see her interaction versus his? Do you understand how she is shown as a woman of faith and a glorious character and he messed up? Hmm. So here's how the rest of the story goes. She said, Dad, whatever you said you're going to do to me, you got to do to me. I just know that I need two months to go hang out with my buddies and just be bummed out because I'm never going to have a family. I'm never going to have kids. We have no more lineage. It all shuts down here. And that crushes me. 
So they did, and then the Bible says he followed through on his vow. So what did he do? Because the, if you read it in straight across, it says that he promised what? Burn her alive. So did Jephthah kill his daughter? Huh. Scholars are split. And here's why. There's, there's, there's seven arguments on one side, five on the other. I'm not going to go through them all. But all I'm going to say is this. It's complicated because the natural reading is that he went ahead and killed her in devotion to the Lord. Now, there's problems with that. First of all, no priest in their right mind would ever allow that. And if you're going to do an offering to God as a burnt offering, you have to offer it at Shiloh through the priest, and the priests aren't going to allow that. Second of all, it's a capital crime in the Old Testament to sacrifice your daughter or your son. There's a bunch of problems with it. But this is the period of the judges. So you have no idea what's going on. Nobody's thinking right. Remember the book says, and everyone did what was right in their own minds. He could have just offered her right there. Other people believe that he did not kill her. But that he dedicated her into the Lord's house. And you go, well, how in the world could they think that? Because the word in Hebrew that is and... Although it's mostly and, it can be or. Therefore, it would say, and I will offer and I will give them to the Lord or offer them as a burnt offering. Meaning if it was an acceptable burnt offering, I'll give that to you. But if it's not, I will dedicate them to the tabernacle. That means that she had to move out and become a nun at Shiloh, and he would never see her again. She wouldn't have any kids. She wouldn't have any family. He basically shut down all of her future. And that's why she was mourning with her friends of going, my life as a mom is over. It makes a little bit more sense that way because don't you think they should have been mourning that she's going to get burned alive? That's probably a little bit more important, but they don't. So what does the Bible story teach us? Why is it in here? Watch your words. You're not in charge. You don't need to manipulate God and don't ever try to bribe him. It just falls back on us. God is saying, I'm not going to play your manipulation games. I'm not doing this. You keep trying to tell me what to do and you keep trying to find some way to force me and control me. I'm God. I'm not doing that, but I'm a good God. I listen to you. I hear you. I minister to you. I don't want harm for you. I only want good. So why are you always treating me like I'm a bad guy waiting to smash you? I'm not that guy. Ironically, the next couple judges, uh, there's three minor judges that are mentioned after that. Collectively, they add 25 years of peace to his six. The next guy that shows up has more kids than everybody. It's almost like his blessing transferred to the next generation because he allowed his dysfunction to wreck everything. Let me ask you this. What type of dysfunction are we still having in the church that our blessing is going to shift to the next generation? Because we refuse to see God as he is. And we're like, well, that's not, we got to do it this way. We got to do it this way. This is how everybody does it. But what if we're wrong and the next generation finally has a fresh perspective and they start doing it right? 
they're going to get our blessing. Why can't we be blessed and they be blessed? Do we really need to hold out and shove it all their way? Doesn't sound right. Jephthah is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Because even though he was messed up, even though he was wrestling through the dysfunction of his past, even though it was still causing him to make poor decisions today, he still pushed through and saw God. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? We're going to close with this. There are some of us in this room where your past is way too dominant. You're living as if it's present. And you have deemed that God can't use you because of what you've come from and what you've done. I need you to hear me clearly. God's bigger than that. So some of us that are worrying about that need to come and get prayer. After I finish praying, you need to come up here and get prayer and allow this team to remind you of the truth of God. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That God only uses broken people. That everybody has garbage in their past. That doesn't mean that God can't use you. That Jesus knows how to make all things new and fresh. And then there's one other group that I just want to call up for prayer. And that is, if you have allowed unforgiveness to wreck you for too long, today's the day to let go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to say yes to you. We want to say, Lord, you are great and mighty and you are bigger than our past. You are bigger than the people that have hurt us. That, Lord, your glory and your grace and your kindness and your forgiveness is much more powerful, God, than that which has wounded us. Therefore, as you download that type of grace and love, Lord, we have to open up our hearts because once we're filled up, then we can forgive anyone because we don't hurt as much anymore. Holy Spirit, come. (laughs) We got to get out of your way. Lord, our hearts are so full of pain. We're not letting you have any space. Our hearts are so full of self that you got nowhere to move. And so we just say, Holy Spirit, right now, we're going to try to get out of your way. Fill that void. Set us free, transform us, change us, heal us and touch us. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint this prayer team. That Lord, that the words of their mouth would be soothing, healing and gloriously releasing. I pray, God, that you would be able to use them as your own conduit, as your own mouthpiece, just to be able to say that you love us and that we're okay. God, heal many of us right here, right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend.